Good morning, church. Our teaching text is from number six, um, starting at verse one through verse eight. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonial unclean on account of them, because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. Thanks to the Lord. So to be quite honest, um, we just don't have time for guest speaker banter this morning, so I'm just going to jump right in. Um, I want to start with you. On May 5th, 2018, uh, that was a really good day. I put my kids to bed. I sat up having dinner with my wife and laughing and talking. It was a Saturday night, but none of those are the reasons I remember that day. I remember that day because that night I did that awesome thing that every married couple does from time to time. I started an argument with my wife after we were lying in bed. It's always a classy move. Um, That argument went for more than an hour, and it got to that point where neither of us knew exactly what it had been about when it began. It certainly wasn't about anything that was going to be resolved now, and so both of us feeling justified in our offense, but unsure of what we were even arguing about anymore, went to bed defeated. The next morning, I got up really early because my wife and my children were flying out to visit family, and so I put them in a cab early in the morning, and I can just remember closing the door at about five in the morning outside my apartment, just thinking, that is not the way I wanted to say goodbye. And I was already awake, and so I I took this walk, and I I just went kind of wandering around the streets uh, in Greenpoint, where I live, and I was talking to God, and it was one of those conversations with God that began about this argument and became about something so much bigger because I was observing that uncomfortably wide gap that exists between who I want to be, who I convince myself I am most of the time, who I've gotten really good at convincing everybody else I am, and who I actually am. And I live most of my life ignorant of, of the massive gap between those, but there's those certain moments where it just like comes nose to nose with you, and you have to face it. And so I was talking to God about that, and I didn't really reach the end of that conversation. I just ran out of time because it was Sunday morning, and I had to come to a building a lot like this one and stand at the front of a room a lot like this one and open with some witty, winsome humor and then offer a sermon that, Surely everyone, including myself, has already forgotten. And I want you to hold on to that day because I'm going to share a part of my life with you today. And the part that I'm going to share has the potential to make me seem quite spiritual. And so you just have to know before I get into any of that that I'm not. 
And that the start of this story um, was a conversation between me and God in response to an overly dramatic, ill-timed argument with the person I love the most. Not a deep spirituality that is unique to me. And I want you to hold on to that day because the conversation that started with God went on and on and on and, and led to 320 days worth of conversation that I'm pretty sure I'm going to tell stories about for the rest of my life. I want you to hold on to that day because we're going to come back there. But first, I, I want to pray and then tell you why it's evil to eat raisins. <laughs> Heavenly Father, um, will you come and will you speak to us? Because I just don't have anything that anybody needs. But you do. You've got everything that everybody needs. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's you that we long for. And so I want to pray, Heavenly Father, that you would just form a canopy of protection over these people and over our time together. And that um, we would hear only from you. And I want to pray... Son Jesus, that you would occupy all the empty seats between us, that we would remember that you came and lived among us, you sat with us, you, you walk with us, and Holy Spirit, will you speak to us? Will you whisper in our ear through your still small voice? Will you place promptings on our heart, and will you be the one that leads us? It's in Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen. So I want to talk to you today about this really strange detailed vow that's laid out in Numbers chapter 6. But in order to understand the passage that was just read, you've got to have some grasp of the plot. And the passage that was read falls somewhere in the middle of the Torah, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And the Torah is this one long story about freedom. Now, most people know the broad strokes of the Exodus story, right? That's where God liberated a people living in slavery, and through a series of miracles and a long journey through the desert, he led them to freedom. But N.T. Wright says this of Exodus, and I think it's really helpful. There are two journeys of liberation in Exodus, the journey out of Egypt and the journey to get Egypt out of them, the journey out of slavery and the journey to get slavery out of themselves, Numbers is one of those books about that second journey. The first half of Exodus, that's about how to get free. The whole rest of the Torah is just about how to stay free. So after all the memorable moments have passed when God isn't parting large bodies of water and manna isn't raining from the sky and spring water isn't pouring out from rocks, how do you live every last bit of the freedom that's actually been won for you? That second journey of liberation, that is the more winding, twisting one. That's the one that all of us have personal experience with walking. And that is what the book of Numbers is about. So how do you convince a free people to actually live free? Well, that takes a prophetic life. And number six is giving the parameters for the original prophetic life. It's describing something called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was this symbolic fast, which was given by God to people to show them how to really live free. So anyone could take the Nazarite vow for any amount of time. It was a fast that was open to anyone and everyone. It was on offer for all of the nation of Israel. And to become a Nazarite meant you fasted from three things. Number one, no fermented drink. 
So the Nazarites didn't drink alcohol. Number two, no razor to your head. Nazarites didn't cut their hair. Their hair grew long. And number three, no contact with the dead. So they observed the Jewish priestly rituals of cleanliness. And all of that had absolutely nothing to do with legalism and absolutely everything to do with symbolism. Fasting is never about legalism, and it's always about symbolism, because there's nothing wrong with a glass of wine. There's nothing wrong with a haircut. There's nothing wrong with helping carry the casket at someone's funeral. So why fast from those things? Because of what they symbolize. Because these three things are a summary of the cleansing rituals that the high priest would go through before entering into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people, and that happened just once a year. So the high priest went through this series of purity rituals to get ready to enter into the presence of God. The Nazarites were a community of people that took that temporary fast and just made it a lifestyle. So the Nazarites went around Israel ready for the presence of God all the time. Their life became a symbol that God has promised his presence to us. And that presence is constantly available to anyone and to everyone by the way that they looked, by what they did and did not drink, by the practices and habits of their life. They were a symbol of this reality that God has made a covenant with us. The point of the Nazarite vow was a prophetic life. So... You could be shopping at the market, and suddenly you pass by someone with long hair and no wine in their cart, and you'd just be reminded that God has made a covenant of love with his people. The point wasn't legalism. The point was symbolism, to become a living symbol of a better alternative story. Nazarites were just ordinary people walking around as living symbols. So the point of the Nazarite vow was to live a prophetic life. And that vow and even the idea of a prophetic life may be pretty foreign to us, but it was actually quite common all throughout Hebrew history. Nazarites are living in the background of every stage of the biblical story you've ever read. Samuel, the very first biblical prophet, was a Nazarite. Uh, Samson, the deliverer in the era of Judges with the amazing hair, Nazarite. John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the arrival of Jesus, lifelong Nazarite. So before prophecy meant a word pointing people to God, prophecy meant a life pointing people to God. Don't just speak a prophetic word. No, I'm calling you to become a prophetic life. Now, I think it may be helpful at this point for me to define some terms. So when I say prophetic life, what I actually mean is this, exposing idols and exposing life without saying a word. I want to break that down. Exposing idols. An idol, that's terminology we don't use much anymore, but all of us are familiar with the concept no matter what we call it. To borrow from Andy Crouch, an idol is something that promises everything and costs nothing, but in the end gives us everything, I'm sorry, gives us nothing and robs us of everything. So I'll give you one example. I want to be desired, and so I obsess about my appearance. I perfect my body, I buy all of the best products, and I redo my entire wardrobe. And for a while, that works. I feel really wanted, but then over time, I lose myself in trying to be desired by everybody else, and I'm left with better abs, clearer skin, and a deep pit of insecurity. I got exactly what I wanted, but it didn't deliver, and it robbed me of everything else in the process. That is an idol. 
And you can replace I want to be desirable with a craving for success or an obsession with approval or a preoccupation with a certain substance. Throw whatever you want in the middle and it follows the exact same script. Anything put at the center of my life always makes grand promises but then turns out to be a thief. So a prophetic life is a life that exposes idols. It lives in a place where a lie has become universally accepted and then exposes the truth. But it also exposes life, meaning that it's not just a cultural critique. It's actually an invitation into something better. It's an actual pathway to the good thing that we go after. Now, there is cost up front, but the promised reward so stunningly outweighs the cost. So how can an objectively free people learn to live free? Through a prophetic life. How can people that have grown distracted and, indulge, and indulgent and crowd-conditioned come alive again through a prophetic life? How can accidental conformists who, ha, who have been lulled into sleepwalking come alive again in the very world that's put them to sleep? It takes a prophetic life. So back to May 5th, 2018. That Prayer about an overly dramatic and poorly timed argument led to a life-changing conversation between myself and God. And God spoke to me over the next week through a number of dramatic moments that I just do not have time to recount. But it all culminated in this realization that regardless of what I say, the life I'm actually living is telling the same familiar, unsatisfying story. I was confronted by this realization. Everyone I know is living more or less the life that they chose, and yet they're also completely overwhelmed, utterly exhausted, and chronically anxious. And so am I. That everyone I know is essentially living out the script that they have written, but the soundtrack playing underneath that script is one of anxiety And I'm leading a church I started, and yet the soundtrack playing underneath all of that for me is one of anxiety. Everyone I know is coping with life by indulging the appetites this city offers. And so am I. The city that I love is an amusement park for adults. Food, drink, fashion, whatever, and Every single one of us is coping day in and day out by feeding our choice appetites, and so am I. So the truth that hit me is that my life is not a prophetic invitation to a better way. My life is not exposing the idols of the city because those very same idols are living in me too. And my life is not an invitation to something better, it's just more of that same tired story. And sure, I've loosened the grip on them just enough to seem respectable. And sure, I've learned nuanced, creative ways of talking about them that might hold people's interest. But everything that is robbing the people that you minister to, Tyler, of the full life that I intend for them, it's robbing you too. And you have no authority in the spirit because the idols of the land of Brooklyn are your idols too. And I sense God saying this to me, Tyler, if you want to minister to the people of Brooklyn, you've got to get free of the idols of Brooklyn. If you want to minister to the people of Brooklyn, you have to get free of the idols of Brooklyn. 
And so through all of that, I sensed God inviting me to walk this ancient pathway called the Nazarite vow. I sensed God inviting me to get free of the subtle grip that's suffocating everyone I know, including me. To not speak a prophetic word, but to actually become a prophetic life, a living, breathing, walking, talking symbol of something better. To walk through the halls of a prison, a free man, and then maybe those living in cells will realize that they're locked up. You've lived in Brooklyn as a Brooklynite. What if you tried living in Brooklyn as a Nazarite? And so I just became captivated by this idea of a prophetic life. And the Nazarites were the original prophetic people, so that seemed like a good place to start. And so I stand in front of you today just on the other side of a 320-day fast called the Nazarite vow. And my Nazarite vow went something like this. This is how I interpreted it. First, the Nazarite vow meant no fermented drink. So that was a fast about indulgence. Indulgence was an idol in Israel, and it's still got its fingers wrapped around Brooklyn. I mean, rest in Brooklyn is happy hour drinks followed by dinner, followed by nightcap drinks, followed by brunch the following morning, right? And the Nazarites became a symbol of an indulgence that actually satisfies, but that required first letting go of the substances they used to cope. So no fermented drink, that was straightforward enough, I'll stop drinking. Secondly, no razor to your head, that's a fast about appearance, It means wear your fast on the inside of your body, but also wear it on the outside too. Because appearance was a quiet obsession in Jerusalem, and it's a much louder obsession today in Brooklyn. We live in a place that is taken with vanity, that has normalized having a closet full of way more than you could ever need. And John the Baptist says, hey, here's how you prepare the way for Jesus. Here's how you make sure you recognize God when he's in your midst. Anyone that has two tunics... Give one away to someone who doesn't have one. How many tunics do you have? None. They're not in this season. What do you mean? (laughs) See, no razor to your head. That's not about a haircut. It's a tangible way to take the idol many of us make out of our appearance and get it out of our system. So I just thought, all right, I'll stop cutting my hair. And then finally, no contact with the dead. That's a fast about purity, about priestly rituals of purity. And, and making contact with dead bodies wasn't much of a problem for me. So this was pretty simple. However, I realized that beneath that was this um, fast about spiritual numbness. What are the neutral things that I'm letting into my life that are diluting my hunger for God? And so I made a list of those things, and it included stuff like uh, social media and shopping and a few other things. And I thought, okay, I'll fast from those things. You've lived in Brooklyn like a Brooklynite. What if you tried living in Brooklyn like a Nazarite? So last week, I got to share my story with the community that I'm a part of and then have my closest friends over to my house and celebrate the end of the fast together. And as you can see, that that celebration culminated in the shaving of the head. And as it turned out, letting the hair grow long was actually a more fashionable move for me than cutting all the hair off. Not everyone can pull off a number three all the way around. Who knew? So Caleb asked me to come and to share my story with you today. And that's certainly not because I've done something impressive. I mean, let's just be honest. Most people around the world live by what I'm calling a fast all the time, not by choice, but out of necessity. I've not done something impressive. I'm not impressive. I'm privileged. So I'm not here to tell you a story that's impressive. I'm here to tell you a story out of obedience. 
because the last year has been the best year of my life. And that is not hyperbole. I actually really mean that. God saved my life through fasting. And I think maybe I'm not the only one. So I'm not here to preach a sermon to you. I'm just here to tell you my story. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through the last 320 days of my life. And I'm just going to try to offer to you the things that God offered to me during this period of fasting. And, and the most concise way I can break it down is to recognize these four major themes or four chapters that I feel like I walked through over those 320 days with God. And I just want to humbly share them with you. So here we go. Chapter one, recover the joy of ordinary life. So there's something that we see in children that we're actually never meant to lose, and it is the joy of ordinary life. Because when you're a kid, all you need to lose yourself in delight is just some free space and free time. Like take a kid to a patch of grass and slowly walk away and just watch them be overwhelmed by joy. It's incredible. It's what David was talking about in Psalm 23 when he says to be without want. So right at the beginning of this period of fasting, I started to realize that that feeling of joy unaided by consumption that I had when I was a kid had somehow been diluted to the point that the only way I could get anything close to that anymore was through like a burger and a beer and maybe a movie afterward. I had traded in joy unaided by consumption for escape, always aided by consumption. And that almost works. Almost. Song of Songs chapter 1 says, For your love is more delightful than wine. God's love is like the finest wine. I worked at this wine bar in the East Village for a little while, and what that means is that in a blind taste test, I think I could pick out the difference between like the Trader Joe's Charles Shaw cab and a fancy bottle of wine. If you put a $3 bottle of wine and a $20 bottle of wine in front of me, I bet I could pick out the difference. But if you put a $20 bottle of wine and a $200 bottle of wine in front of me, I don't think I could tell you the expensive one. And that's not because there isn't a difference. There is. It's because I have not trained my palate to recognize the different flavors. God's love is like the finest wine. It's complex and robust and smooth and intoxicating. God's love is like the finest wine, and that means it goes unappreciated on most palates. Because most of us can only recognize, and most of us only have a taste for the cheap stuff. See, sommeliers, they go through training for years and years and years just so they can recognize the different flavor notes in a nice bottle of wine. They'll take a sip of wine and... Pomegranate. I'm get, are you getting pomegranate? And there's something acidic. I think it's tomato. No, sun-dried tomato with a hint of black pepper. Really? I was getting above-average wine. See, life isn't about gaining the palate of a sommelier. It's about keeping it. Because you had it at first. But then we spend our lives making these tiny little exchanges, none of which are a big deal all on their own. I'll use shopping to cure my boredom. I'll use alcohol to trigger rest from responsibility. I'll use entertainment and distraction every idle moment I have. And those simple pleasures, what the Bible calls the appetites of the flesh, multiplied again and again and again, dull our taste buds until all we crave is the cheap stuff. 
and the joy of ordinary life suddenly has been exchanged for um, consumption, or I'm sorry, escape, always aided by consumption. In the words of Jesus, unless you become like little children, recover joy, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 1 Timothy 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So how do we get back what we've lost? How do we retrain our palate to find joy in the ordinary? Oh, it's right there. Here's the pathway. Contentment. If you want to regain ordinary joy, just walk the pathway of contentment. But contentment is a compelling invitation, but it is a terrifying journey because contentment feels like starving at first. See, it helps if we take it out of biblical language and just put it into psychological language. Dr. Vincent Felitti says, it's hard to give up something that almost works. And he's a doctor writing about the power of addiction, but the ripples of truth go so much further than that because the almost things dull our palate. It's hard to give up something that almost works. And escape by consumption almost works, but it doesn't work, and we know that it doesn't, and I was at a place in my life where I was finally admitting that it doesn't, and so here is the pathway back to the true, ordinary kind of joy, fasting. Fasting is the surrender of the almost things for the promised things, And the promised things are infinitely better than the almost things, but they can only be received and they can never be controlled. And so fasting feels like starving at first because it's living without the almost things that I've learned to cope with day in and day out. But then a month or two in, what started off feeling like starving suddenly started to feel like feasting. Because I wasn't giving up something for spiritual reasons anymore. I was taking hold of something I wasn't willing to go on without anymore. And so here is the passage that carried me first and has carried me the longest. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Because in fasting you start to savor something different. You begin to taste the notes of God's love that you've overlooked with a less discerning palate. You begin to taste contentment again. Because in less, suddenly you're finding more. And the passage goes on, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Flee from all this. From all what? From all of your almost things. From all the good things you've turned into ultimate things. From all the means of escape you use to cope that don't actually produce joy. How do I go after contentment? Oh, I, I starve my cheaper substitutes. Because the only way to go after the joy that you had at first is to feel like you're starving until you learn to live without what almost works. And then you start to reap the reward of the joy of the ordinary life all over again. And the passage culminates with this. Uh, Caleb, this is deeply resonating. I love that. I, asked, I told Caleb, if, if you're feeling like it's not going well, just woot softly and then maybe, I don't know, we'll see what happens. The passage gets here. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight for the promised things. And that fight's going to feel like starving at first. So I have a friend in my community named Will. 
And I was having coffee with him, and he was telling me, yeah, man, I've gotten to this stalled place in my career, and I've been looking and looking and looking for the next right vocational step, just the next move up into the right on the vocational ladder, but I'm applying and applying and applying, and I'm just stuck. And it's owning me. It is crippling my identity. And then I just noticed the other day that I can't find a single example of a career-obsessed person in the New Testament. And that's because they're all obsessed with building a kingdom other than their own. And so I've stopped praying for a career advancement. I've started praying that God would keep me in the place of discomfort until I start wanting what he wants and dreaming what he dreams of. What's that? Godliness with contentment. That's greater gain. I have a friend in my church named Katie who's currently living for the 40 days of Lent on nothing but broth. So I asked the obvious question, why? And she said, because of 1 Peter 4, because I want to learn to identify with Jesus in his suffering that I might also inherit his joy. It's because godliness with contentment is the greatest kind of gain. I've got a friend in my community named Debbie who decided that she was going to start praying for an hour a day. And she said, I noticed that I would emerge from these amazing times in prayer with God and then just re-enter this world of subtle comparison and jealousy and competition. And so I knew that, that prayer had to go hand in hand with fasting. And it started with just social media, just giving up social media. And then something biblical happened to her. She became addicted to fasting. Because what first felt like stripping herself suddenly began to feel like feasting on something she could not provide for herself. The almost things were let go for the promised things. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what if fasting is not about abstaining, it's about living? And what if the most you can ever gain feels like losing at first and the fullest you can ever be feels like starving for a little while? Fight to take hold of the life You've been promised. That's chapter one. Chapter two, purity and power. So the scripture is filled with spectacular promises for the pure in heart. Here's the most straightforward and concise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So I want to let you in on my personal dream for my life. I want to get to the end of my life and be able to look back on the whole thing, and it be a story that does not make sense unless God is exactly who he says he is. A story that defies logic except for the power of God. And I want to let you in on my dream for my church, which I'm sort of embarrassed by, but I told you I'm just going to share my life with you today. This is my dream for my church, is that one day, as an old pastor, I would be invited to speak at a conference about American church growth, And I would come in front of this conference and they would say, Tyler, tell us how you built this thing in Brooklyn. And I would honestly be able to say, you have absolutely nothing to learn from me. All we did was prayed and it turns out God is exactly who he says he is. So I would just suggest taking him up on his promises. That that we would have a story as a community that defies logic except for the power of God. And suddenly I began to sense that God was saying, Tyler, I want to give you all that you dream of, and so much more than that. And here's the pathway to it, purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Have you ever noticed how subversive that statement is? Because presence, the manifest power and presence of the Holy Spirit, that is the sexiest part of the Christian faith, without question. There's not even anything that's close. Purity, that's the least sexy part of following Jesus. No question. 
And of course, God would pair them together, right? I mean, isn't this the way that the kingdom of God always works? Jesus promises, I've connected them. The pure in heart, they are the ones that will be most well acquainted with my presence and my power. Do you want to know my power? Then become a pure vessel, a clean, empty channel that I can just pour my Holy Spirit straight through. And so God was doing in me first what I longed that he would do through me. God was saying, I'm going to unconform you to the ways of the world that I might give you that for which you are dreaming. Purify your heart and then you'll know the power that you keep asking me for. I'm dying to give it. And it's not about your outward ministry. It's about your internal life. And then it'll just accidentally spill into your outward ministry. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I just wonder if that's bigger than me. I mean, is God calling the church to purity because he's longing to give the church power? The way that God gives power is to declutter us, to make us empty vessels that his spirit can pour through to the world all around us. The way that God pours out power is always through purity. And so if you're longing for power, I wonder if God might be calling you to purity. You know, what if fasting isn't about legalism? It's actually about the power of God. Chapter three, old souls. So I've had this one prayer for years, and I suspect that some of you have something like it. I've had this prayer for years that goes something like this. God, there's some old couple out there in middle America, and they've been elders at their church for decades, and they're planning a retirement right now to a gated community on a golf course in Florida. Would you, by the power of your spirit, compel them to spend what could buy a mansion in Florida on a studio apartment with asbestos and black mold in Brooklyn and cause them to give the last chapter of their lives to a city that so desperately needs it? God, we need wisdom. Will you send us wisdom? And then God began to answer that prayer in exactly not the way I was asking. And it came through this strange, brief appearance of a guy named Elihu at the end of the book of Job. I don't know if you've ever read Job, but it's basically like eavesdropping. So if you've ever eavesdropped, you've sort of read the book of Job. It's one guy who's gone through a series of horrible events. I thank you for whoever that landed with. Trying to sprinkle in some humor. I mean, I'm a guest speaker talking about fasting. You know? All right, so... A bunch of really horrible things happen to this one man, and then he's verbally processing all of that with his three closest friends, and Job is listening in on that conversation. The whole book, you think you're listening into a conversation between four people, but there's actually five people. It's just that Elihu, the youngest man in the room, doesn't speak up until chapter 37. He's in the background the whole time, but he doesn't make his presence known. And then at the opening of Job 37, he says, look, I've been waiting thinking, no, sit back, you're the youngest person in the room. Let the wisdom speak. But now that I've heard out the conversation, I know that there is no wisdom here, and so I have to speak up. It reminds me of of a scene in the movie 13 Days, when in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK turns to Robert Kennedy and he says, you know, we're still young men, but I think we're the old men now. And I was looking around for wisdom, and God was saying to me, Tyler, you are still young, 
but you have to be the old man now. And I just wonder if some of you have been looking around this congregation saying, God, we need wisdom, send us wisdom. And in this moment, you're realizing, oh, you're still young, but you have to be the old soul now. And so Elihu, that's what hits him, and he, he begins to speak up, and there's this powerful speech. It's so powerful that Job never responds to Elihu. He just begins praying to Jesus. That, that's the power of the wisdom of an old soul living in a young man or woman. Is not that it turns people to you, it's that it turns people to Jesus. The, the effect of the wisdom Elihu carries is that it turns Job in prayer, and we're told that the fruit of that prayer was that the second half of his life was even richer than the first. So here's how God started to answer my prayers for wisdom. In young people in Brooklyn, I'm going to place the spirit of Elihu. So what if God wants to give the wisdom of old men and women to a city that's obsessed with youth? What if God wants to anoint young men and women in this church to become wisdom for our city? What if the greatest gift that God wants to give our city is lying dormant, caked in the dust of our almost things right now? What if fasting isn't about becoming a religious hermit? It's about becoming a gift to the city that God loves. You're still young but you're the old souls now. One more chapter. Chapter four. The holiness of Jesus, not John. So I was running late to the Christmas Eve service that was for this church and the church I lead in Williamsburg, and I was co-preaching at it, so running late was a touch of a problem, but no one was going to be surprised because I've always been running late everywhere I've gone for at least the last decade. However, this time I had a, a real excuse. I, I, I went down to the subway stop next to my apartment, and it was down. And then I walked all the way to the next subway stop, and it had no machine where I could buy a Metro card, and mine was empty. So now, extremely late, I walk above ground, and I'm standing on the street, and I order an Uber. Nine minutes! Nine minutes! That's an eternity in Uber world. And so I'm standing there on the corner, anxiously waiting for this Uber, checking my GPS over and over again. And then I look up, and adjacent from me on the corner, right across the street, is a man who is blacked out, intoxicated, with an open container lying next to him. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Christmas Eve. And as I was looking at him, it suddenly hit me that I'm on my way to celebrate the God who's broken into the world. And I'm going to be surrounded by the new family of Jesus that's been united by that God. And then I'm going to leave there, and I'm going to order a pizza and pick it up on my way home. And then I'm going to sit in my warm apartment and probably watch Home Alone. And I'm going I'm to wake up the following morning, I'm going to give gifts to my children, and then I'm going to board a flight, and I'm going to go visit family that's going to love me always, no matter what. My life is so rich. And something's gone so horribly wrong in the life of this man that the way he's coping with it is to get blacked out, intoxicated in the middle of the day on Christmas Eve. This is a normal scene in Brooklyn, but all of a sudden I'm seeing it on this day, beholding an absolute tragedy. And all I could think was, how would Jesus respond in this moment? And I knew the answer. He'd cancel the Uber and walk across the street. He'd get down on his hands and knees. He'd wake this man up gently. He'd buy him a cup of coffee and then a meal. 
He'd learn his name, and then he'd bring him to the Christmas Eve service with him because the church is the new family of Jesus for those who don't have family to be with on Christmas Eve. He'd bring him back home to his apartment. He'd share his pizza with him. They'd watch Home Alone together. His whole evening would be so inconvenienced by this man, and it almost certainly would result in just a major headache, not a compelling story that he could tell all of his friends later, and he'd count every bit of it joy because he was broken for the broken. And again, I was observing this massive gap between who I want to be who I convince myself I am most of the time and who I actually am. I was observing the massive gap that actually exists between my character and the character of Jesus. And I just heard the Spirit whispering to me, Tyler, I have not called you to the holiness of John. I've called you to the holiness of Jesus. And I knew exactly what that meant. Because to be holy, it's just this really religious word for set apart. It means to be set apart, to live a distinct life. And John the Baptist, as I mentioned, was a Nazarite his whole life. He was set apart by disciplined renunciation. Jesus had a reputation as a glutton and a drunkard. And yet he was holy. Because he was set apart by compassion. What people saw in John, they also saw in Jesus. What John was doing by restraint, Jesus was doing by compassion. To be with Jesus was to be confronted by such compassion because he gave himself so completely to other people that he was set apart entirely from the world. Jesus was holy, not by restraint, not by discipline, but by compassion. He entered the temple and he saw past all of the leaders to the insecure and the ashamed and the outsider. He entered the city and he saw past the bright lights to the prostitute and the poor and the blind and the leper. He, as Caleb already mentioned, sat down next to a well and where everyone else saw someone not to interact with, he looked in the weathered face of a Samaritan woman and saw the harvest of an entire city. Mother Teresa was once asked, you know, your ministry in Calcutta is so beautiful, but how can something like that possibly translate to a place like the U.S.? And she said, oh, Calcuttas are everywhere. If only we have eyes to see. What if fasting isn't about becoming a legalist? It's about becoming the sort of love we've only heard rumors about. What if fasting is an invitation not to become more boring, but to become more dangerous? To be set apart by compassion, to truly see other people, to be free enough to treat everyone else like they matter. What would it take for you to actually begin following Jesus? To begin living a holy kind of compassion. I'm still in that chapter. I think I'm going to be in it for the rest of my life. So here's what I'm not saying to you today. I'm not calling you to live by the Nazarite vow. I'm not suggesting that all of you become connoisseurs of non-alcoholic beer and grow your hair out. There's no magic in this one ancient Hebrew fast. And if that's what you're hearing, that's a message of the Pharisees, not of Jesus. Don't hear me say that. This is what I'm saying to you today. Is I believe there's an invitation to become a prophetic life. And I think the pathway to a prophetic life always starts with fasting. So this is a call to fast. In the third century, the Christian church was peaking. Attendance numbers had never been higher. The church was, had made a sharp turn from mocked and oppressed to the official religion of the developing world. In terms of measurables, things were going phenomenal. It was a raging success, but the idols of the outside world were creeping in. 
and the internal life of the church became indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. They had lost their saltiness in the language of Jesus. And at that time, a reform arose from a few radicals who had the audacity to fast. They didn't start a reform at the church through action. They, they did it through fasting. And they didn't start by speaking. They just started by becoming. And today we know those radicals as the desert mothers and fathers. They withdrew into the desert mimicking Jesus' temptation. And their plan was really simple. What if we took Jesus seriously enough to actually follow him? To follow him not just into the celebration of his victory, but to follow him to face down the temptations of our time and our city and our culture. And the result was life so compelling that people started moving out of cities into deserts to gather around these people that were living prophetic pictures, walking, talking symbols of something better, a living invitation. The result was communities in the middle of the desert. What if fasting is an invitation to become desert mothers and fathers without leaving home? To become a living picture of something better right in the middle of the city. See, the church of previous generations, they've convinced us that the way forward is relevance. Right? We have to become appealing to this more appealing culture. But the way of relevance just leads to a conformed church. The idols of the land creep in. The way of relevance is exactly what led the desert mothers and fathers into fasting in the first place. Brooklyn is not waiting for a group of Christians whose lives are so relevant that they've become indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. The way forward isn't relevance, it's consecration. To become set apart without even leaving home, to become a community living in the middle of the city by an alternative story, a community that exposes the idols of the land and exposes life without even saying a word, a living, breathing invitation to anyone who would hear. A living, breathing invitation to the most ordinary kind of joy, because that's the only kind anyway to the undeniable power of the Spirit that is promised to the pure in heart, to the wisdom of old souls, and to holiness, to a set-apartness that comes through compassion, not through discipline. Brooklyn is waiting, not for a relevant people, but for a consecrated people whose lives are an invitation to something better. So yeah, this is a call to fast. Because when the way forward is consecration, the pathway is always fasting. And fasting is not about legalism. It won't earn you more of God's favor. It's about becoming desert mothers and fathers without leaving home. It's the way we become prophets right in the middle of the city that we love without even opening our mouths. St. Francis, the most famous of the desert fathers, had this message for the church leaders of his time in the third century. He said, your people's greatest need is your personal holiness. Church, what does Brooklyn need most? Your personal holiness. And that's got nothing to do with legalism and everything to do with symbolism. So if we're going to minister to the people of Brooklyn, we've got to get free from the idols of Brooklyn. Do you want to start a revival? Then get revived. So this is a call to fast, but it's not about restraint. It's about life. And the motivation to fast is never religious guilt. It's always holy jealousy. There's this really good kind of jealousy. God himself is described as jealous all throughout the scripture. Jealous for you. 
learning to savor God's love, learning to see like Jesus, all of it feels like starving before feasting. All of it feels like losing before gaining. So what on earth would cause someone to choose that jealousy for something better? And so for some of you, what I think is happening today is just as I've described one of these chapters, there's this deep kind of want rising up in you. There's a holy kind of jealousy. It's just like that, oh, I want that. The joy of ordinary life, the power of the spirit through the pure in heart, the wisdom of Elihu, the old soul, the compassionate holiness of Jesus, I'm jealous for it. I'm jealous enough to choose a way of fasting. I'm jealous enough to let go of my almost things because I want the promised things. And that's a good, holy kind of jealousy. And I believe there's something stirring here. This is how I know. is because we are sitting in a city built on indulgence, talking openly about sacrifice, and as I'm talking about it, some of you want it. If that's not God, I don't know what you're waiting for. Some of you want it. So I'm going to get out of the way and allow you to respond to God. Can we stand together? Now, as we're standing, I'm just going to invite you into whatever posture of prayer feels comfortable to you. And we're just going to invite God to speak to us. This moment right now, it's about just recognizing holy jealousy. And so in a moment of stillness, I just invite you to return to any theme today that has particularly caught your ear. To allow maybe just one thing to rise to the surface, one thing that you are meant to focus on, one thing that has your attention for some reason or another. You come now, Holy Spirit. You come, Holy Spirit, and speak to your people as we wait on you. trying to discern how do I know if this is the voice of God or if it's just kind of the my imagination the thing that's coming to me first the way that you know it is is that something both resonates with you and it terrifies you so maybe if God's putting his finger on something in your life and you're thinking that's not a problem for me maybe if God's putting his finger on something in your life and and you're thinking not that Maybe you've known it from the moment the invitation began and you're just thinking, I want that so bad, but I'm terrified to walk that path. Something like that, that's kind of what the voice of God feels like. And so if if there's some holy jealousy rising in you for one of these themes I've mentioned or maybe even for something else, I just want to invite you to recognize that just between you and God just by opening your hands right in front of you. just simply a way for you to posture your body and say, God, I hear you and I want it. In fact, I want it bad enough 
to let go of the almost things because I'm hungry for the promised things. If you just remain in this moment of prayer, um, I'd like to lead a, a response that'll be, I think, a little bit abnormal from what you guys normally do. If you're a part of the prayer team here, will you just go ahead and come forward and be on either side of the room right now? Just go ahead and make your way forward. And, and we're going to come to the table in just a moment. Because the most beautiful thing about fasting is that it's really about feasting. It's about feasting on Jesus who calls himself the bread of life. But I just have a sense that um, maybe some of you, we just need to mark this moment. So I'm going to invite you to do something really courageous, a courageous way to say yes to Jesus. And, and that's just to come and to choose him today to choose to say yes to him over any fear that would hold you back and so there's prayer ministry leaders that are going to be up the front and they would love to pray for you just to pray blessing over your life you don't even have to talk to them about everything you're processing and you're not saying yes to the Nazarite vow or any sort of kind of fast you're saying yes to a holy kind of jealousy and then you can work out the details with God later on But if there's something stirring in you today, I want to just invite you to have the opportunity to receive a prayer of blessing. And I also just want to give you the opportunity to come and to, in a desperate way, say, I want the promised things. So we've got rugs at the front of the room, and you can come and just simply fall on your knees before God to become undone. And and this is just a way of posturing your body to say, I'm desperately hungry for this promised thing. And we've got prayer ministry leaders at the front of the room, and I'd love for you to be able to come to them and just say, God's speaking to me today, and I just want to receive a prayer of blessing. I want to be sent from here, not with a private moment with God, but with a communal moment where I'm saying yes. And then, of course, there's a table where we get to come and feast And so right now, just if God is speaking to you today and you're saying yes to fasting out of a cry of holy jealousy, will you just come forward now and receive prayer from one of these leaders? Or will you come forward now and just fall on your knees on one of these rugs and just wait to say, Jesus, I'm desperate for you. I'm desperate for you. church is not the place where the needy become undone. It's the place where we get to become undone. Just as we continue to respond to God, now I'm going to open the, the table up and we remember and we celebrate this today that 
we serve a Savior who is the bread of life, the deepest kind of satisfaction. So as you come to this table today, as you taste of this bread, as you dip it in this cup, remember the life and sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf so that you can inherit all the life and freedom that he's promised. So church, whenever you're ready now, we're going to worship, we're going to respond, we're going to pray. And you're invited to celebrate in response by coming to this table, picking off a piece of this bread, dipping it in this cup, and celebrating the bread of life who's come into the world to satisfy the hungry. So come church and respond as you feel like.